0: If you think you felt a great disturbance in the Force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the Secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it
1: is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? (laughs) Inglorious Trexperts.
2: And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV
1: show. But it is. But it is.
2: It It is.
0: is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts, as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. (laughs) Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever, you, whatever you have that streams, other than a ViewMaster. You download it, and and then you watch it, hundred percent free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're gonna love. Trexperts Briefing Room, a new series. Briefing
1: Room? What is that?
0: I was about to explain, then you interrupted me. I'm sorry. It's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek.
1: Sounds like fun.
0: It will be. (laughs) <laughs> and you could find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there.
1: Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and this is Darren Dockerman, and this is the best of the inglorious Trexperts
0: at Comic-Con at home, and we're thrilled to be with you. We only wish we were with you in person, but, you know, cozy up to your screen, and it'll be like we're all together in San Diego. Because unfortunately,
1: know, next- on our in our landing party, we both uh, got injured. And so we are lying in sick bay right now. And the only way that we can be cured is if we relive all these moments from the inglorious Trexperts.
0: Exactly. It's the only way to save us because as we all know, <laughs> clip shows are always the best episodes of every science fiction TV series. That's correct. That's why, you know, look, when I think about Buck Rogers, I think about Gary Coleman, you know, and A Blast for Buck, where Gil Gerard has to live through memories of previous episodes to figure out who's tormenting him. And it turns out to be Gary Coleman to wish him a happy birthday.
1: That's funny, because when I think about Buck Rogers, I think about someone completely different.
0: Wow. Yeah. And, you know, what? I know who you're talking about. And it is the wonderful and beautiful Aaron Gray. And you know, we were lucky enough to have Aaron uh, show up. And, and, you know, the fact is, you may think, why was Aaron Gray on a Star Trek podcast? And the reason was very simple. A lot of people don't know this. She auditioned for the role of Captain Catherine Janeway. Yeah. And uh, here's Erin Gray joining the Trexperts to talk about her ill-fated audition for Janeway.
3: Oh, that's right. The, the going you me talking about the audition.
0: Yeah. Oh. See because oh, you know yes. there was a lot of talk back when uh, people are talking that when uh, was Voyager was, was first being cast right. that you were in contention for the lead that ultimately Genevieve Bougeau got.
3: Yes. I didn't know I was in contention. All I remember is telling my agent, "I want to audition for this." And he said, "No, Rick Berman doesn't want you." I said, <laughs> "I'm sorry. But the fans and myself, I really want to do this, and I'm I I want to play the captain. Finally, I want to be the captain, mm-hmm. which you let me be the captain. Thank you very much. Um, and I I begged, I begged to audition, and they kept saying no. They finally let me audition, and I remember they're saying we are we want to make they're having difficulty with the actors because it's a lot of sci-fi dialogue. And I said, well, <laughs> after two years on Buck Rogers, I think I can handle that. <laughs> However, it's kind of hard to uh, see how to tell this story. Um, so they were very concerned that, I, you know, someone could nail this monologue. So I worked really hard on the monologue. Man, I just, I, they're going to let me in the room. I got 20 minutes to prove that I can do this, right? And I walk into the room and I, hi, hi, hi. And I'm, I'm, not hearing who I'm being introduced to, because all I can think about is I've got to yeah. memorize these lines, and I've got to stay in character and whatever, and I start the first line, and I hear this voice saying, "So, you don't remember me, do you? We only spent three weeks in Palms in uh, Hawaii together, and I went, and it's like everything in my brain disappeared. <laughs> everything. And I looked at him, and I went, "Palm, uh, Hawaii, Hawaii. Who did I? I don't know. Three weeks? Wow." And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, and, and i and then when he reminded me that we had done Magnum PI together, I went, "Oh, well, you gained a lot of weight and lost all your hair, so it's really oh hard." Um, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, okay, um, I didn't say it. I would have said, so much said much it. But in my mind, am supposed to remember you? I mean, I mean, really, oh you, yeah. You know, uh, So uh, at that point, um, I did okay, but I didn't nail it the Mm. way I should have because I was just, all the emotions were going around Mm -hmm. inside and, you know, so I didn't, I didn't, ah, you know Mm. that. Sweet spot that you right. worked so hard yeah, to get yeah. to, and and I, that's when I wrote in my book, by the way, Act Right. I said I, I told my a, my agent afterwards. I said anytime I do an audition, I want a list of the people who are in we're the room, in the so room. I can be prepared mm-hmm. to know what I'm going to be dealing with. You wow. know,
0: that's so smart and it's so true. Yeah, because you were totally thrown off your game by Completely. that. Completely. And had you known who was in the room, would I would have been... been
3: able to, hey, good to see mm-hmm. you. I would have remembered. We could have a nice little conversation. I would have at least been prepared for it. But instead, I did an emotional explosion inside of myself. <laughs> oh, not, not a good time for that to happen. But I really wanted that part. But I think um, Kate Mulgrew did a wonderful job. I'm glad she got it.
0: And and apparently she lightballed set men.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe they they ended up yes together (laughs) i I, I didn't have a chance (laughs) once i heard that
0: you know oh my My god goodness well and yes and the rest is is history history, history. so there you go i mean boy obviously we talked about a lot more and you know we talked a lot about buck rogers but my favorite part of that interview was talking to her about battle the network stars
1: yeah yeah
0: you can't go wrong with battle network stars
1: oh my god it's uh it's uh for those who couldn't live through it, who didn't live through it, who wanted to live through it, um, you can you can still find it on YouTube. Look it up. It's something you would not believe. Uh, I've it, seen it, things you people wouldn't believe. It comes from a time where there used to be, well, networks and stars. And yeah. we don't really have those anymore.
0: Uh, you know, honestly. Darren, you know how we do the Starship Smackdown here at Comic-Con every year? Sure. I wonder, I wonder if we could figure out a way to do kind of a battle, the of, the battle of the network stars. starships. Yeah, yeah, if we could <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, that. That could be interesting. We got to talk about. It. We got a year oh to goodness. figure out the next Comic-Con, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I look to you, Darren Doctorman, to see what we could come up with. Because I think the Battle of the Network Starships would be awesome.
2: <laughs>
1: with
0: Captain Gabe Kaplan. You could only oh have God. captains who were on battle. So it's Robert yeah. Conrad on the bridge of the enterprise versus Gabe Kaplan. on the And Kelly
1: Savalas. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That's right. The possibilities are amazing. Trudy from facts of life. It'd be great. It'd be great. And then
0: Trudy. Trudy. Yeah. And you could have, you know, Richard Hatch was on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Gerard was on Aaron Gray.
1: Darn oh right.
0: man. Terry Copley.
1: Farrah. Foster. Okay.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. So, you know, Look, obviously, you know, Aaron was a great guest. Um, it was really fun uh, to have Anson Mountdown. Uh, we are all big Absolutely. Hell on Wheels fans. And, of course, um, he played the role made famous by Jeffrey Hunter in The Cage and uh, made the role his 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 own. Um, and a big longtime Star Trek fan. And he dropped in on the Trexpress uh, to talk about his role in Star Trek Discovery and the upcoming Strange New Worlds. Here's just a little... A uh, sense of what uh, Anson shared with us when he was here. I want to ask you. Well, let's let's talk about you know discovery. And this may be some ground that that was tread before. But you know, was this an offer situation, or did you have to audition for it? What or, was
4: uh, in the case of playing uh, uh, Captain Pike? Oh, um, okay. How did this happen? All right. So th- I'd been talking to them actually about Captain Lorca mm. before the. F- First season, and uh, they very wisely hired Jason Isaacs, and then so when they are getting geared up for uh, for season two, they call back and said, "Hey, there's this other captain called Captain Parker that you might be right for." I <laughs> <laughs> see. It's just. <laughs> secretly thought to myself that's not its a, a very boring name of a captain and there's like Were you, would you mind putting yourself on tape for a couple of scenes and I was like yeah of course so my wife recorded me and did the off camera lines you know camera in one hand mm. sheets in the other she played Mr. Sloth <laughs> <laughs> and, number um, two <laughs> and uh the, and then the next day they called and said okay would let's do it and it's actually Captain Pike um And I just, I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. (laughs) Or Captain Parker. Because I I knew exactly what it meant. I was like, wow, that's that's such a cool idea. And I can't believe I get to play a Starfleet captain, man. That was my make-believe game when I was like eight years old. It's incredible.
0: So... You know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, they really fell in love with those characters and would love to see more of them, uh, you know, in a future spin-off or series, and you revisited the character for Short Treks, which I wonder, w- was that an interesting, you know, uh, being the short form versus the long form and having directed yeah. and written your own short films? I wonder, you know, what was yeah. that
4: like for you? I'm just going to lean down here and get some more of the branded beverage I can we, we, we won't tell anybody your, your secret is safe with us the show brought to you by cocoa no. by cocaine no that was, if we were doing the show in the right. 50s it would be right by, um, by hot cocoa yeah I first of all I loved the idea for the the short tracks uh as a as a way of uh keeping the fans involved in a in a time when we're not doing 22 or 24 episodes right. a year uh, and we're making these these short orders and people have to wait for so long. I thought it was a very smart thing to do. And then when I saw it aired and I realized we're on a it's on a streaming platform that doesn't have to deal with network programming, I was like, short films can start to be a thing now. Mm-hmm. And I, I love short. I've done a lot of short films. I've directed short films. I'm a big fan of the medium. Um, that was very exciting to me. And I'd like to see more... Television dabble in smaller stories. I, I, I do think that storytelling, uh, story, telling, story, story uh, the, you know, the, the, act of the Joseph stories. Campbell of yes. it all, yeah. right. the, the mythology, right. the existence of mythology, there's something innately human that is going to always want to get together around the campfire mm-hmm. together. And listen to a story told. There's something we in that that we need to um, ward off the spirits and the darkness behind us. You know, see
0: and that was the host of the well talking. Right. All of a sudden, he just lifted up the show, <laughs> made it very airy dropped Joseph us. Campbell. <laughs> but I'm
4: also from a long line of southern bullshitters. So
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: there is that. Uh, 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 uh. That was a lot of fun, and I, I have to say that you know, no matter no matter what uh, any of us personally think about. Discovery. Um, I think all of us agree that Anson Mount is great, and we love seeing him in that show.
0: Look, and a lot of live service has been paid to the fact that Strange New Worlds uh, is going to uh, try and uh, emulate the format of the original, be more episodic, uh, deal with more allegory and metaphor, and uh, you know, be more of a throwback uh, to classic Trek. And you know, if that's the case, I think we have something very exciting to look forward to. I certainly Absolutely. hope so. Okay, you know, one of one of my favorite people um in any of the star treks um uh, and he's so erudite and and one of the things i love about this guy is he also huge fan of classic movies like us um and also was a big fan of the original star trek and I, I the fact that we got him to talk about his experience with star trek the motion picture i thought was extraordinary and of course i'm talking about everyone's favorite klingon the uh the great michael dorn so uh here's a little uh, a little uh, a. a sitting down with Michael Dorn to talk about his first love, the original Star Trek. Tell us about your first experience seeing Star Trek, the motion picture, and
5: what you thought of it, if you recall. Um, I thought it was really good. I liked it. You're preaching to the choir. I liked it a lot. I thought it was was a nice introduction, um, and I thought it was um, one of the best endings ever. I the reveal when, when Collins so and and Persis Kambata, I just went. Uh, I mean, it literally, you kind of go. I want to be there. Right. I want to be one of them. And um, and I thought it was. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Thought Do you remember really-
0: where you saw it? When you saw it?
5: Uh, it was in Pasadena at mm-hmm. um, and I think I was on a date, and uh, it was one of the it was one of the big theaters in Pasadena because that's where I grew mm-hmm. up and and that's where I saw it. Uh, I mean 77? 79. 79 yeah. 79. yeah, yeah. Saturday is the 40th anniversary. Oh, wait, what was 77? Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So so that and was And Damn Alley. Yeah. <laughs> huh? And <Yeah. laughs>
0: <Damn> Nation Alley. <laughs> no. That yeah, was the, the the movie that Fox thought was going to be the big hit that summer.
5: Yeah. Yeah. That that shows what what they know. Yeah, yeah, well, you exactly. know, Michael,
1: uh, uh, studio people don't often know what they're talking about, <laughs> but that's all right. We still have to deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I really like that.
5: It's really good. Uh, <laughs> I love that, especially the end. But we've got to deal with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you got, and then of course, you know, we talked about, you saw Star Trek, the motion picture on a
5: date. Mm-hmm. You love Star Trek too. <clears throat> Comes Star Trek Six. You get offered a role. You offered a role, and uh, it was a, a wonderful role. It wasn't a starring role, but it was a nice little meaty thing. I thought it was thought it was wonderful. You're your own grandpa. I'm a right? grandpa and I'm, and I'm and i'm and I'm, you know, in there. yeah, you know yeah. it was very funny. I lost. Uh, and as I was walking past deForest and um, and uh, and uh, Bill. DeForest goes, "Hey, he was, he was, he he just gave me so much shit. It's so funny." He goes, "Hey, uh, give me your card. You're really good. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to recommend you to some people
6: because
5: <laughs> I lost big." And then Nick Meyer came down and he was saying, "Okay, Michael, I want you to do this. You know, that this line," he, and he did something with his hands, and I go. No, doing like this you know I'm <laughs> trying to figure out and DeForest goes not at all like you practiced last night huh <laughs> oh my goodness he was he was funny yeah but there was a there was a great fan moment because I I was once again the one of the a big fan i never went to the conventions but I was there and um there was a moment when we were shooting one of the last scenes in the big hall at Kittimer or whatever the case. And and they had the, the guest stars on one side of this room and they had um, uh, the cast on the other side of the room. And it was – they were all there. right. And I'm sitting there on the guest stars and I'm just, you know, sitting there looking around or whatever the case. And I look and they're all there. Right. And I'm in a scene with all of them. And they were – I gotta tell you something. They were all talking and joking and laughing and having a great time. And I just had a a moment right. where I went, holy mother of pearl, yeah. there's Scotty and Sue. So, you know, yeah. And I'm pointing them out and I'm doing their voices. Yeah. You know, I like, didn't <laughs> do some brand of Scotch to do that, you know. And <laughs> we're back to do, Captain. I mean, I was just going on and on and on. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> and that was my moment of like, okay, you know, this this is this is one of those moments in Hollywood that you, it doesn't come along.
0: Well, and the studio had made no secret of the fact that this was the last film. Yep. It was the 25th mm-hmm. anniversary. Mm-hmm. And then it was over for the original. Yes. And it, the success of Next Generation at that point had clearly put the final nail in the coffin for the mm-hmm. original as well. So not a bad way, just that you know, way, they yeah. now had a new franchise uh, with a, a younger cast. So mm-hmm. um, that must just have been absolutely
5: in- incredible for you. I feel a little bad about that. Um, although I felt that we should have gone 10 years the movie i mean with the tv show Mm. right and then done the movie Mm -hmm.
1: sure it It was so much fun to talk with him uh using the gene voice uh (laughs) i i I loved that moment it's one of my favorite moments from our podcast honestly uh because uh we we had a lot of fun going back and forth there
0: yeah it's funny because you um i mean you did the gene voice for shatner um, oh, yeah, he, he which, didn't. Re-
1: he didn't remember how Gene I mean,
0: couldn't even it, it didn't even resonate. But my God, Michael, Michael instantly uh, was yeah. just uh, I, I, you know, anyone who knew um, Gene well, I think is really including his own son, uh, Rod Roddenberry. He's always yeah. amazed when you break out the Gene
1: voice <laughs> and a little and, bit uh, frightened. I mean, and a little know, bit frightened. David Gerald but is still frightened when I do it. So I, I try not to around him.
0: And, you know, unfortunately, uh, Gene um, has suffered under a little bit of critical revisionism in the last couple of years. And I think it's really unfortunate because whatever his foibles and, and uh, you know, he was a showman.
2: Yeah. But
0: more than that, he had the goods. He created something incredibly special. And uh, his creativity and inspiration in creating the un- original Star Trek was unparalleled. And I think, you know, there have been a lot of uh, muckraking <laughs> biographies and things like that. Yeah. So it was such a thrill to have uh, the TV writer, producer, um, comedian, uh, Alan Spencer on the show to yep. tell us his perspective on Gene Roddenberry. And
6: here's what he had to say. What happened was Gary Marshall had uh, something called the apprentice writer program at Paramount where anybody could come in and it was not in the writer's guild. And you were on the writing staff of a show. And it was kind of an internship, except you were writing. And many, many people broke in and they got trained and then they got elevated to story editors and writers and producers. And Gary sat you down. All the new trainees would come in and he said, um, right now you're going to be paid less than you're worth. In a few years, you're going to be paid more than you're worth. So, so I was floating on different shows then. There were all the different Gary Marshall and some of the Paramount shows has floated around and Mork was the hot show. But it hadn't got on the air yet so and and nobody knew who robin williams was i did some of the industry did but on paper it, it didn't sound very promising to a lot of people and of course it exploded into something but so when i started at paramount it was very very young conspicuously young i think i was the youngest writer at that time to be doing something like that and i was nervous i didn't know how to dress and so i wore a ridiculous suit with a clip-on tie. (laughs) I was
2: trying to look older.
6: Um, And I think I looked like Pee Wee Herman, basically, coming in there. And people were looking askance at me. Um, Some people wonder if I was an executive son. Some people thought I snuck on the lot, which is certainly viable. But when I went to have lunch in the commissary, I also didn't know anybody. I was standing there by myself, and I felt like Carrie at the prom. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they, they were all laughing at me. There were some people pointing and having a go, uh, you know, wondering who I was. And, and, and you know when you're awkward, when you have that, it, it, you know people can feel it. And either some people have empathy for you or other people will have a go at you. Right. And showbiz is very mean and people are not nice. So I was standing there and I felt ridiculous. And I looked over and there was a man in a turtleneck and a sports jacket who was looking at me with empathy and kind of smiling fondly and I made eye contact with him and I knew exactly who he was and he came over and introduced himself and he said hello I'm Gene Roddenberry and and (laughs) all of a sudden the world got nice at that moment I don't know what he was just a gregarious guy and 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 he and I said uh I know who you are, Mr. Roddenberry. What a a thrill to meet you. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm a writer. And, And he didn't look askance at that. A lot of other people didn't like hearing that. He goes, oh, they're hiring him young. And he says, what are you working on? I said, a show about an alien visiting Earth. He goes, oh, I had some experience with aliens, you know. Yes, <laughs> and then I pulled my wallet out, the, the height of him, And I had to show him that I had a photo of Spock in my wallet. And you should have seen his expression. <laughs> his eyes kind of glazed Aww. over.
2: <laughs>
6: but he was cool about it. He goes, I have a, I have a bigger one in my office. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm going to remember your name. You seem like a nice lad. He said, come over to my office whenever I have a chance say hello. So uh, all of a sudden, and it was interesting because everybody in the commentary saw me talking to him and they're just such whores. All of a sudden they were like, yeah. oh, oh. He must oh. be somebody. Yes. Yeah. He could be the head of the studio. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> in fact, Marty Feldman did that once. Marty Feldman was my, my good friend. There was a, a launch party for the last remake of Bojas. It was the first movie that he made for a multi-year deal. He had at Universal and they had a reception at a place called Dharma Grab. And all the Universal execs were there and agents and actors. They're all fetting Marty Feldman. And I was the youngest person. I was too young to drink. Of course, I was still. And people wondered, who is that Marty? And Marty told them that I was uh, like Lou Wasserman's son or
0: something. (laughs) (laughs) The chairman of MCA. Yeah, the chairman. (laughs) Yeah. And he said,
6: I'll be running the studio in a few years. So Literally everyone there was kissing my ass. It was so (laughs) horrific. (laughs) Bringing me drinks and offering me cars. Yeah. No, there wasn't any blow. They, they offered me clean needles. But, uh, <laughs> so it was just sort of funny. The next day at the Paramount Commissary, I walked in, and Gene Ronberry, I think he was there with Susan Sackett, was having lunch, and waved to me. Hi, Alan, how's it going? And I was with some of the other writers from the show. They go, you know him? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knows my name. One of my favorite memories of that time is, one of the reasons I wanted to come here is there's a cottage industry a little bit, I, and I guess you probably talked about it here because you've been defenders of it. Of, of, of people occasionally bashing Gene Roddenberry have their own agenda mm-hmm. to take shots at him, uh, casting aspersions about him as a writer or as a producer, and they all have their agendas. And nobody else gets this. I don't understand it. You know, Rod Serling doesn't get it. Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. There are no there, there are no books coming out going, uh, you know, the, bashing these people. I
1: can only imagine how that was. Uh, you know, being there at that time, Uh, because it, it, you know, Alan paints a a great sort of word picture of of the situation there and certainly talking about the computer and everything. Um, But uh, it just (laughs) just goes to show you that, uh, of course, of course, there were other contributors to Star Trek over the years. Absolutely. But Gene was the ringmaster. We talked about this, uh, this uh, analog before. Uh, gene held it all together certainly at the beginning and made the show go and it was his guidance that brought everybody along and i think we shouldn't forget that
0: i don't i don't think people realize what um a massive undertaking it is to carry a show on your shoulders and when star trek uh was created there was literally nothing like it on television there had never been anything like it on television And everything was invented from the ground up. And there was such an attention to detail. And that's all because of one man, because of Gene Roddenberry. Now, of course, we um, had people like Gene Kuhn, who came on later, who took the seed that was planted by Gene, you know, right. and watered it, and it flourished, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and John Meredith Lucas and, you know, a lot of DC, fanta- a lot of people were involved. Um, but you can't take away the magnitude of Gene Roddenberry's original creation uh, and, 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 uh, just what a really uh, special person he was. Absolutely. You know, speaking of special, you know who I I loved having. one of the shows we always try to spotlight on this, um, on Trek experts is is one that doesn't always get the love of some of the other shows. And, you know, I think for us who are, you know, obviously it's no secret, you know, classic Trek fans through and through, the show that comes closest uh, uh, to us um, is Deep Space Nine, uh, which was really a, a remarkable show. And I think also, the kind of the underdog and I'm not talking about the uh, shoeshine boy (laughs) from the cartoon. Uh, I'm talking about the, you know, underdog in terms of the the one that got, you know, a lot of disrespect and only now is really being, I think, reappraised for, for many reasons. Um, But, you know, at the heart of that show, you know, was uh, Avery Brooks, of course, and uh, the second in command, the Bajoran first officer, Nana Visitor who played uh, doctor, who played Kira Nariz. And we were lucky enough to have Nana uh, drop by the studio to talk to us about Deep Space Nine. And here's what she had to say.
7: So when I got Deep Space Nine, I thought, oh, I'm going to take care of guest stars as best I can. Because I know what that feels like. It's You're working under the worst circumstances yeah. possible. Yeah. You know, you're just kind of in there fighting.
0: And you're also fighting this perception because, let's face it, it was syndication and people who didn't know the show it's you know it's, it's sci-fi it's like aliens with b- bumpy noses and t- so if you don't know it you think okay well, it's I a paycheck to? what is this and then you realize oh wait this is something special and then you start to have people like frank l'angella that and Louise was fletcher the thing.
7: we started to get very fancy guest stars yeah. and that was an indication that we were going to stick around number one and that people were going oh this is interesting stuff um the minute frank l'angella came on i thought oh, okay all right we we've arrived in some way here even though it was Level still <laughs> yeah even though it was always under the radar which yeah. served us well you know yeah. there wasn't a lot of people telling us what to do they didn't care
0: right. <laughs> and isn't that the beauty of it it's like, it was the beauty. You, you know you had a, a ne- network a studio that didn't care yeah. you know a front office that didn't care they were always you know chasing other things the next show or the show before it right but just after that premiere they just sort of gave up on you and you got to do your own thing
7: you're 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 this weird show go on then and it was great
0: it's really hard when you're on the inside looking out you know at a show because it's like you have a certain perspective um but when did it dawn on you that like you were working on something you know really really special
7: when i saw the pilot put Mm. together they sent it to me because i couldn't go to the i was i had the flu of course you know i was doing too much um and when i saw the pilot when i heard the music it was... I couldn't believe it. I thought it was beautiful. I became a huge fan of the show. Very passionate. I, I loved what we were doing. I thought it was so interesting and so different. And I had an opportunity to play a person that I just... I wouldn't get a chance to play anywhere else. You know? Doing the the, the whole... De- the, the whole... I mean... I, I had such a range that I could do, from being a Cardassian to being the, the you know, intendant, all mm-hmm. different aspects. It's like, you know, what is it, 12 archetypes, whatever they are. Right. I almost got to do them all. Right. It was crazy. Right.
0: Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, you mentioned the attendant. I mean, it's like you just looked like you were having so much fun doing those those mirror, mirror universe now, stories. That's
7: one Place where you know you go into comedy very easily, right. and I wanted to, re- I wanted to push the envelope, and and hopefully I didn't go over so that she had no sting to her. I wanted her to be a scorpion. Yeah, I wanted her to be slightly foolish.
0: It's amazing with that deep bench of uh, supporting characters that you know that you guys got serviced as much as you did because oh my God, I mean, you know, to have. You know, Andrew and they have Casey and they have, you know, just, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I mean, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And Jeffrey in 9,000 roles. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and, and that, I mean, that's kind of the joy of that show, too. It's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, you know, that it's just so rich.
7: Each one better than the next. Uh, they were such great actors. It was so fun to come to work.
1: And it never felt like they were taking over the show. It always felt like everybody was kind of part of kind of one big tapestry as it were.
7: In that it was like a theater company. Yeah. You know, this time you're doing the lead, this I'm I'm carrying the spear. It was great. I yeah. mean, I think that's the that's where we all felt comfortable.
0: Yeah. You were part of like the, the big 3. I mean, so you were almost always working i mean you know kira was always in the
7: the center of it yeah so there wasn't much downtime. you know not a lot and it was tough to do that show and have a three-year-old and be pregnant oh my god and you're the woman of action (laughs) on the show and be the woman of action and they they're putting me in you know skin tight right sure and but it's like well you know what and i had to make these decisions it's like yeah this is what pregnancy looks like for me some people Come back and we see those people. That not me. I gained sixty pounds. Here it is. Right. We'll we'll slowly watch it come off together. That's just the way it was. I couldn't have an ego about that.
1: She was delightful. I yeah, just, that's you know, absolutely uh, delightful. Just, she it, she was just her energy is so uh, nourishing and fun and oh my goodness what a what a pleasure to uh, have her uh, come to the show.
0: You know, it's funny. Every time we have somebody I really like on the show, um, I always think to myself, I got to put them in something. You know, and I, I've been lucky enough, you know, to, to cast a couple of people. Um, uh, you know, with you know, Shatner and Free Enterprise, or you know, we had um, Aaron Gray. The way I got to know Aaron was we cast her on Pandora for a season, and then now visitors like on my short list. Like, I gotta find something for her one day. But if somebody I did actually put in the show uh, in Pandora, like a few weeks after they were on Trek Experts was uh, this next actor. And, you know, one of the gifts of Deep Space Nine was its deep bench of supporting actors. It created this rich tapestry, this ensemble that was, it can't be topped. I mean, you had Andrew Robinson as um, Garrick. You had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, certainly, you know, Max Grudenchik as Rom, Chase Masterson as Lita. Um, you had so many, Mark Alemo, who was just tour de force as yep. Dukat. Uh, But I think one of the people who had the unenviable task who literally ended up playing three roles in the series and then would once again return as another character in
1: Enterprise. He took up an inordinate amount of that bench, honestly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because not only did he play uh, a Vorta, but he played also um, a uh, uh, a Ferengi. And and then he also played a... uh, Something else. Andor-
1: <laughs> and, and, and-, and Dorian.
0: No, well, and Dorian and Enterprise.
1: William.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, of course, uh, Shran, which, of course, yeah. I'm talking about the incomparable uh, Jeffrey Combs. That's and cool. Jeff came down uh, and spent some time with us on the Treksports. And here is what he had to say. What, what a, a booster you are for Star Trek. I mean, anyone who's seen that recent documentary that Shout Factory put out, Ira Bear's... Um, uh, what we leave behind. Uh, you're all what over we that. Left what we left behind. What we left behind. I stand corrected. Um, you know, so, so Jeffrey is all over that. And I, I didn't realize, you know, because for some people, you know, a recurring uh, gig on a show, it's, it, it's just that. It's, it, it's a gig, it's a paycheck. But clearly it was a passion for you.
8: Well, it didn't start out to be a uh, paycheck. Uh, well, I suppose it did. I mean, I, I never would have imagined when I first. You know, I'm just a schlub with an audition, and I go in, and let me tell you, there were a couple of times I didn't get the gig. You know, thank you very much, and you never hear anything. So, when I did get cast, it was for a oneer, um, a character that I did not recur in, and I thought that's it, that's it, that's that's my, that's my foray into one of my childhood enthusiasms, the original series. Mm-hmm and um just so i can like check that off and i'm good <laughs> so a little did i know that it's it's, it's the little things guys uh, just so happened that uh renee who i'd done theater with i reconnected with him on set even though i didn't have any scenes with him and he turned to the producers and said how about jeff for this other character brunt a Ferengi." And they were a bit resistant because I just did a guest art. You know, they were like, going, no, <laughs> I get, no, we don't do that. But he prevailed, and um, I started recurring as Brunt, uh, liquidator Brunt. And, <laughs> and um, that's when Ira Bear walked up to me and said, we really like what you're doing, and we want to bring you back as a character where we see your face. I'll never forget that, where we see your face. It was like, well, yeah, oh, okay. Hollywood bullshit. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, like, th- maybe three weeks later, I get a call and it's Wei but Wei died at the end of the episode. So it's like, oh, okay, that's, fine. who am I to know how these things. <laughs> I have to tell you that um, when Enterprise was announced as a series, I had some wish, or hope, that well, hey, I have uh, recurred, and maybe proven myself here. Maybe there's a role. um, Maybe there's a role in the uh, the the uh, the main cast that I might uh, uh, try for. And uh, uh, and and I heard nothing. I had nothing, and so I was a bit miffed. Actually, wow. I was not. Um, I was like, "Okay, fine. This is so typical. This is so typical of Hollywood right. in general. There's really no uh, uh, loyalty. <laughs> lo- 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 loyalty, <laughs> It's always new and improved. It's it's just. There's just we're just widgets. Fine. I I, I feel the." love not, right?
0: Well, I know, you know, Renee used to talk about how liberating mask work and prosthetics is. Yes. And, you know, for you, who you know, it, it can be difficult, I think, being associated with such an iconic role like Herbert West and Reanimator. And yet you, you know, have... The mask work and the prosthetics were so liberating because you got to play not just one character, not just two characters, but, I mean, what, how, what, what was the grand total on, on, on the amount of roles you played over the your tenure with Star Trek? It was quite substantial. I don't
8: know, six or seven mask work. Yes. Yeah. Now, because what is playing an alien in Star Trek or any other manifestation? But mask work. Uh, and so... A lot of actors aren't comfortable with that. That they, 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 this is their tool, and 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 they think that if you took that away from them, uh, they're lost. And a lot of them are. But some some people go with it, and Renee is certainly one of them. Where you embrace that, and it actually informs and helps you to uh, fulfill something that otherwise, without it, you couldn't you couldn't do.
1: Yet again. He's uh, he, he's dynamic in a very quiet manner. It's yeah. it's uh, it's sort of uh, his his presence is is well felt uh, when you're talking with him. And uh, I think all of that comes forth in the characters that he does.
0: Yeah. But, you know, you know, I obviously, you know, Darren, you are a very accomplished and uh, well-known uh, concept designer working on shows like everything from Picard to Westworld to movies like Master and Commander and uh, X Men Two, and uh, I think X Men Three. I stand corrected. That I guess a Freudian flip. I I, I tried right. to, yeah. But um, you know, so for us and me being a writer and a producer, it's not just about showcasing the people in front of the lens, but the people behind the camera. Yeah. And we've been lucky to have a lot of those people on the show over the last couple of years. And one of my favorites, who, who's who's shown up a couple of times now, is uh, a producer and writer, uh, Brandon Braga. And um, one of my favorite appearances he had on the show was when he came to talk about um, the movie Generations, which was um, the first movie to feature the Next Generation cast and what was and what could have been. What was the Led Zeppelin song? What is and what never be or what could have <laughs> Anyway, it was so. And, and you know, one of the things I've always liked about Brandon, he's very candid at assessing his tenure on Star Trek. Yeah. You know, He's very proud of the work he did, but he can also be very... He knows Sub-Rose is garbage, <laughs> you know, it's like, I love <laughs> the fact, that, you know, he's not shy about, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, assessing his work. Honestly, he has a, course, he has a healthy perspective, a healthy perspective. And, you know, his work speaks for itself. I mean, he had a huge role in shaping generations, wrote some of its greatest episodes, of course, went on to show, run uh, Voyager and create co-create Enterprise with Rick Berman. And, you know, he is, uh, you know, he started as an intern. So it's a fascinating story he's gone on to do shows like the orville I'm, I'm a big fan of his so it's always great to have him on the show and here's what he had to say to talk about the 25th anniversary of star trek generations
1: we've had this discussion many times on on the podcast that um everyone has a different view of it and and a different starting point and we all tend to uh embrace that which brought us into the family and the, the nostalgia month. can't be discounted as a big right. influence. absolutely
9: on... absolutely. But that's where the the move, you know, the movie kind of and you know there were and there were reshoots, you know, the movie we tested the movie and People liked it, but they didn't like the end, and they right. didn't like the way Kirk died. and How
0: does that feel for you? I mean, here you make a movie, and I assume at the time, you know, th- there's the excitement of you know you just made your first feature. Everyone's telling you it's great. You go in to test it, and then all of a sudden the numbers come back, and they're not stellar. And suddenly the studio's like, "We got to reshoot the ending."
9: Yeah. Well, I-, I was this. It was all so new to me that I was just kind of taking it in. You know, I wasn't surprised. At the ending, um, I certainly didn't know how to fix it
1: mm. um, Did you have that feeling in your gut like it just wasn't working and you were waiting for the other shoe to drop or when you well, saw we, it together, it,
9: you know it was purposely anticlimactic mm. and I don't remember it was there was a cinematic reference Ron and I had had watched it might have been a John Wayne movie where he was shot in the back, mm-hmm. and we thought underplaying the death. Um, n- not making it grandiose would would have some uh, would be sh- kind of shocking and unexpected but it just was flat as a pancake it, and people hated it and the solution was to make the whole sequence much more inten- grand and right. And un- I've, I've said it a million times Kirk should have died on the bridge yep. not under a bridge Right. and, yep. and, and but that's not the movie that we made. You
0: know, Star Trek works well when it's space opera, and it is kind of, he's, Ricardo's larger than life, Shatner's larger than life, and it just, it works, and it works on the big screen, and that's something I want to go to that Darren said, where he talked about, you know, and you said, oh, you know, 30 million, it was a pretty sizable budget, and he says, you know, well, once you count in the above line, it's not, and one of the things I felt that the movie suffered, because if you, anyone who's read the original script, there's some great scenes that got lost because of budget. Um, the Romulan attack on the space station and there's that really fantastic um, battle on, on the deflector dish, which you sort of revamp for First Contact, which is one of the great scenes in First Contact, but where they have a fight once the ship crashes and they're fighting on the ship yep. in the wreckage of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's kind of really cool and very cinematic. And for me, because Next Generation was such a cinematic show, particularly the finale, that in a movie, you really got to amp, the, amp yeah. it up. Otherwise, what's the difference between the TV show and the features? Um, and, and when the budget was cut and, and you know, you, things got smaller and smaller, and then the resources you have are going to things like being on the boat, th- that hurts, you know, ultimately, you, you know, the, the, the movie. Um, and uh, do you remember anything about maybe some of the, it's a long time, um, <laughs> uh, some of the scenes that were cut or, or, or any, you know, sort of kill your darlings?
9: I have much more vivid memories of the making of First Contact because I was more heavily involved in producing the show Sure, I I, I was there for for everything. Um, But I remember that the the crash of the Enterprise had to keep getting scaled back and I do remember the fight on the dish you're talking about And and you're right, we did it in the next movie. You know, I, I, I if, if I had to pick one example of the film falling short in terms of being a, a movie versus a television show was there's this battle with Lursa and Bator, the Klingon sisters, right? And when their ship blows up, it's a it's a shot used from another movie. Right. We didn't make our own shot and I hated that. I hated that. I'm or like, people are going to be watching channel. this in the theater. They know that shot, right? They're going to know that we reused the shot. And that to me is a, an example of, you know, I, I don't think it was a good decision at all. That was fun.
1: It's, it's sounds interesting. Like, sounds it's, like fun. It sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> it, it It's really interesting to hear his, you know, present day take on what happened on that show and, and the ramifications of everything and his perspective since then. Um, It's fascinating for him to uh, open up like that.
0: Yeah, but he wasn't the only one. Um, You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is how many people were huge fans of Star Trek before they got to work on the more recent iterations. Obviously, Ron, Ron Moore. I mean, you know, his whole Klingons were shaped by reading the final reflection. Yeah. Uh, a, a novel, you know, as a kid. Another person who was deeply influenced by Star Trek and was immensely entertaining on one of his many appearances on Trek experts was, of course, the great Brian Fuller, who went on to do uh, Pushing Daisies and uh, the brilliant Hannibal. Uh, but he he joined us to talk about the 40th anniversary of the motion picture, which we spent a whole year honoring back uh, back in uh, 2000 and uh, tw- 2019.
1: 2019,
0: and uh, and and so. Uh, let's let's hear a little bit of Brian looking back at that seminal motion picture that we love so much.
10: I guess my first exposure to to Star Trek were the the motion picture was the action figures. So mm. I'd seen uh, the trailers, and I and once again it was marketed a bit like a horror film because there was a big monster coming for us, and and the Enterprise was the only yep. thing between us and the monster. And I thought that was fantastic and really gripping. And also, I love that the Klingons were were redesigned and looked more alien. And the when I finally did see it on cable, uh, the beginning with the Klingons is my favorite opening to any Star Trek film. Mm. Because they expose you to an alien race. They're speaking a different language. Right. And they look... Alien and the visual effect sequences just watching that last night. it's beautiful. you yeah. know where every penny of those 46 million dollars went for that budget because the the effects are such wonderful world building. So um, I was obsessed with the Klingon action figure, which my parents wouldn't let me have so I stole it. and <laughs> uh, that's what you get sorry. Uh, give me what I want. Um, and when I finally saw the film, I, I just, I, it really resonated with me as a horror film and a horror story at the, mm-hmm. at, at the same time that it was exploring great human qualities mm-hmm. of each of these characters, you know, sometimes to a flaw. You know, the, there is, uh, you know, moments in the film where I was like, that's great character building, but I can see how it's it's dragging the narrative. Mm-hmm. But I still, I was transported. And successfully, as opposed to...
2: <laughs> as opposed to the, the horrible
10: mistake at the beginning of the film where... They're
1: forming.
11: ...those two wonderful people you... are turned inside out.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> one
11: of the things I wanted to hear you sort of uh, pontificate about is that it was unheard of for a major studio to take the cast of a television show that went off the air 10 years previously and put them in, what, which was at the time, one of the most expensive movies ever made. But at the same time, the function of that was it created a continuity. Right. The, 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 your, yes, we had the menagerie showed us the cage, but that was the first leap in Star Trek continuity that was amazing. But this, showing us these same actors, bringing them back, updating the ship updating the uniforms updating the whole universe created i think the the beginning of what is modern continuity in storytelling Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially in genre storytelling and you you did something amazing with continuity on hannibal where you were able to flip and change continuity but it seemed very much of a piece like i when i saw hannibal which is one of my favorite tv shows of all time i was astonished as someone who's read thomas harris's books how you were able to change things and yet still make it feel of a piece that it, you had continuity. How did the continuity of Star Trek: The Motion Picture and the fact that it updated the universe but still kept it the same? How has that affected you in your storytelling over the years? Well, I, and, and Star Trek as a whole, how do you feel about the
10: continuity of the
11: show and what does that all mean? And do we need continuity?
10: I think I think continuity is is a double edged sword. And in, in some ways, I think you know with What I loved about the motion picture was that time had passed. And they really told that story visually and through its characters. You see how. Kirk is a guy who hasn't been out in space for a while and this isn't the ship that he left and he wants it back. And just like the So in a way, Kirk was the audience. We wanted those characters mm-hmm. back. We wanted this world back. And what was so beautiful about someone like Robert Wise, who is an incredibly elegant filmmaker, to have him take the helm and really deliver a a Kubrickian interpretation of Star Trek, mm-hmm. as opposed to a Lucasian uh, <laughs> I think it's Lucasian. He's Lucasian. A uh you know, a kind of you know frothy, fun uh, fantasy. You took somebody who was much more of an intellectual filmmaker and applied a thoughtful interpretation to Star Trek, and and provided the audience that new look that was not different. It was just time had passed and technology had advanced. Yeah. I I, like wholeheartedly. I wanted more. I'm
1: so happy to hear, uh, you know, people who have are um, well-established give their uh, opinions on Star Trek, the motion picture and uh, the, the love that is there for that, because it's, it's long been a, Uh, almost forgotten film in some people's minds. And I think that uh, as the, as the years go by, um, we're starting to realize just how magical it actually was. And, you know, it, it, it didn't, it didn't fulfill a lot of people's expectations, but perhaps that's not a bad thing. Perhaps it, uh, you know, it fulfills something grander, something more than, you know just the sum of its parts and i think that's how i think about it
0: well it's gone to a real critical resurgence and, and reassessment because for a long time i think the cast dismissing it was doing no favors and it got labeled with the uh you know the the, the, the motionless picture yeah. pejorative which is not you know not at all true and i think only now people are realizing you know and for a whole generation that watched it on home video they didn't realize you know in a fear, the right. theatrical scope and and sense of awe that that motion picture evoked, and it really is the end of an era for Star Trek. You know, and a whole new era begins yeah. with the next film, uh, which of course is Star Trek Two, which ushers in a different kind of Star Trek, which is 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 um, it's less tied to the original show. It's less tethered to the original it's a show. Little
1: more populist.
0: It's it's a little more populist, which isn't to say. That it's not great because of not course uh of course it is um but uh you know star trek 2 was the end of an era i mean, Star Trek one was the end of an era and star trek 2 was the beginning of a whole nother era and one of the people who does not get the credit that he deserves who was such a huge part of star trek 2 was its producer bob Salin. it was the only star trek movie he worked on he had a big falling out with his old college friend harv bennett at the end of that picture and, and left star trek forever but we uh, we were thrilled to have him on the show where he we could sort of give credit where credit was due and attest to his con do attitude. <laughs> see what I did there? I, see what I, I see did? Very 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 clever, very witty. I mean, it's an interesting thing because here you you hadn't done features and you just sort of swept in. But what it's important to understand the context in which Star Trek II was being made. The fact that they had just made a very, very expensive movie right. that made a ton of money, but it would have made a lot more money had it been done cheaper. So now they're doing it under the aegis of the TV, TV division. division. That's correct. Um,
12: yeah, the first one cost uh, was budgeted at about 20, 20 something, I believe, and it went mm-hmm. to forty four, forty six, right. and half of that was in visual effects. Uh, they simply didn't know what they were doing. Uh, I hate to say that, but I, I, I quizzed a lot of prisoners in their, separately in their cells. <laughs> well, it's you know it's what you do when you want to learn to not yeah. to make the same mistakes that other people do. And uh, I found out that there was just a lot going on there that was sad. I mean, it's sad because it got in the way of a really happy and good film. It could have been. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big fan of that first one, to be candid. I mean, it's... You know, I suppose for the believers, it's a, it's a wonderful exercise, but I never felt that it was a really first-rate piece of storytelling. Um, anyway, so I, I came aboard, and, um, you know, how to make the transition, because in my heart of hearts, I'm a director. Mm-hmm. But one thing you learn when you have a business of your own is the bottom line, and you end up being really a producer, whether you want to be or not, because uh, it's, it's kind of unforgiving, and it's quick, and there's a lot of turnaround, and you have to really be disciplined. The second thing that I, I realized helped me enormously was that working in commercials, you're always dealing with something that cinematically is different. At uh, one moment, it could be a, a job that has a lot of visual effects. The next minute, it's a, it's a, 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 a comedy or a, a dialogue spot with with, with the people, or it's a car commercial, or it's an airline commercial. I did all those. And um, so you have to either learn or know what questions to ask and who to ask them to. And I think that above everything else put me in good stead for this. And as I got deeper into it, um, I was shocked. And I guess at this point in my life and at this point in time, I can be honest and say this. I was shocked at how much a lot of people that I dealt with um, didn't know anything. Uh, I mean, about the craft. Would you be uh, surprised I, to know that that still happened? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done any smarter. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> it is to me, too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's kind of frustrating because you presume yeah. going in, you know, you go to the big Paramount sign and everything, that these people are really on it. Yeah. And, um, well, somewhere, you know. And fortunately, I, I hired everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, in the commercial world, you have to kind of be on top of who's really good right. because your clients aren't going to hire you. Right. If they can get that from somebody else, exactly. so you have to appear and hopefully know uh, what's going on, who's doing the best work, and so on. You mean I... you got to know your stuff? <laughs>
11: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. No. How did? What was your relationship with Harv? So it sounds like you were the physical producer of the were film. Were you functioning as a line producer, pretty much, or?
12: Uh, you know, I think definitions are very difficult in this world. As you know, there different people get the titles. and <laughs> Some people do the work and other people right, sure. like the titles. Um, I, it was it, like any other feature film, in my opinion, Unless that's maybe it's Spielberg uh, and maybe Dick Donner, who my, my dear buddy. Um, you know, uh, it's a combination of, of, of talents and events and luck. Yeah. Uh, The bottom line is, if you're if you're asking me who actually created the look of the picture, who actually styled the picture, who actually worked on the story of the picture, and who brought it in on budget, I'm afraid that's me. (laughs) There you go. Uh, I mean, I have to be honest with you. I mean, and if you talk to anybody who worked on the picture, they will tell you the same thing.
0: Well, I love the fact that Harv. you know, had in his contract executive producer because in television, executive producer is right. the better credit.
12: But then he realizes it's like halfway through Ooh. the movie. When I, <laughs> That's I want to be credit. producer on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, not unlike a lot of people in our business, they want the credit without doing the work. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that
1: episode was so filled with uh, things that I had never heard of before. Uh, it's It's such a joy to talk to someone who has a perspective that you've never heard before. And yeah. uh, that's what Bob Salon brought. Well,
0: for many years, he, he did not have a, a, an outlet to tell his stories. Yeah. And so to have him, you know, and, and, and Bob's really become a friend of ours as well. Yeah. And I'm thrilled, you know, that we can really spotlight his uh, contribution to Star Trek. Um, and of course, uh, you know, he's been called the man who saved Star Trek. Which is a bit of a misnomer, but there's no taking away from the genius of Nick Meyer. Certainly, that ten days of rewriting those awful scripts that he had been handed yeah. when the show was about to be put in the turnaround by uh, Paramount, and and basically came up with the script that got the movie greenlit, is uh, a testament to the genius of Nicholas Meyer. He'll be the first to tell you he's a genius, but he's a wonderful, uh, brilliant, uh, 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 super talented filmmaker. You know, we love his movies, you know, like uh, Time After Time. Star Trek II is, is, you know, obviously a seminal science fiction movie. And, you know, having Nick, uh, uh, it's always a great uh, time talking to Nick because he's super erudite. He always has something interesting to say. And his appearance on the Trek was no exception.
13: And so they sent me these five scripts. In those days, you don't hit send. You send a van. Yeah, yeah. With all these things and you sit and and I'm like reading them and reading them and reading them. And and then I made my suggestion, which is why don't we just pick the things we like out of all these things and like I'll try to write a new script. And basically that's what wound up happening, except they said, your idea is great, but it won't work because we need a script in 12 days to give to Industrial Light and Magic to produce... The effects in time for the opening i said what opening <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they had already booked the movie into theaters before we'd rolled a camera Did it again yeah. uh, and i you know i'm young and idiotic and i said well i think i can do this in 12 days but we've got to you know get on with it now um so you know we picked these things so, uh, so uh, technically on one level i wrote the script and on another level The story was written by everybody and his brother because there was the Kirk Kahn story. There was the Kirk and his son story. There was the Genesis Project story. There was the Lieutenant Savick story. Mm -hmm. And I just like a little Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Um, I got to imagine. I mean, here you're coming off time after time, critically
0: acclaimed, beloved, but not particularly financially successful at the time. And now for your second film, you're doing Star Trek. Uh, a franchise that you didn't have any particular affinity for and you're being told most of the time there's no money, you know. Um, So do you remember at all what it was like? Were there ever those dark moments of the soul
13: where, like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't think so. I think I was too busy to have dark Mm. moments of the soul Uh, and I was, in a way, having too much fun. One of the nice things about making that movie was that I was... To a very large degree, left alone. Uh, executives were always so busy doing whatever executives do that I, I was left alone, and I was left alone to reinvent this thing because I didn't. There were so many things I didn't understand. You know, rightly or wrongly, why don't they read books? But otherwise, why do, why are they running around in pajamas? I didn't understand any of that stuff. So I and why do the why do the ships look like Holiday Inns and? as opposed to like submarines or destroyers or whatever it is I thought they should look like. So I was having a field day. The first day I walked around the bridge set, I said this, 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 and this, and this, and somebody whispered to me later, you just spent $60,000, kiddo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't I didn't know, and I wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, I was very aware of the time pressure because we – you know, it was all hurry. And maybe that was not so bad. But we, you, you know, we shot during the day and I edited all night. Um, I think there was like a couple of weeks there where I just didn't see daylight because I, I was eating lunch in the dark while looking at, at dailies. And um, I think it's a, an artist's job is to figure out how can you can leave things to the audience's imagination because that's how you draw them in, mm-hmm. make them work. In Henry V, uh, the chorus says, On your imaginary forces work. Think when we speak of horses that you see them planting their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I think it tends to be missing in a somewhat literal-minded you know, and it becomes you become very passive and I start falling asleep in movies that don't give me anything to do, nothing yeah. to chew on.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, then obviously it begs the question, obviously there was a lot of controversy recently. or I shouldn't say controversy, it was a lot of discussion about uh, what Martin Scorsese and, and, and Coppola had to say about Marvel
13: movies. Well, he said, if I remember the key sentence that, of what Marty said was, there's no sense of revelation. Right. Well, I think he has a point. I mean, I don't, I don't go to see those movies anymore. I don't go to see any movie that ends in the word man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think With it's With the exception of Searching for Sugarman was the only one I, I went <laughs> so to So the see. Irishman
1: is right out. Oh, in <laughs> <America>. <laughs>
13: I'm going that, to, that's his superhero movie, The Irishman. I'm going to go see that tonight. That's very good. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was great. That's terrific. Irishman. Yeah, the Irishman. <laughs> the guy. I wonder if he's in spandex. I'm going anywhere. <laughs> at the Egyptian. That was a
1: fun one. It was a little bit, a little bit tenuous at the beginning because we were all, you know, he was feeling us out. We were feeling him out to see which direction things were going to go. And uh, it was fascinating. I think he, he finally warmed up when uh, Ashley uh, uh, made a, uh, a the very, Irishman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, yeah, the uh, Irishman as a superhero movie. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, at the end, he uh, he enjoyed his time on, on the show. And I, I hope he did.
0: Well, Nick doesn't suffer fools gladly. And he always starts with the same story. And I think that's to sort of test his interviewer. He says, mm-hmm. yes, it was his real chest you know, and, and if you, like, give it a big laugh and, like, it's the first time you're hearing it, he, he has no respect for you, yeah. you know? And it's like, if you, you say, yeah, we've heard that story, like, 60 times, and, yeah, we know we don't care about Ricardo's yes. chest. I think then he's like, oh, okay, these guys, uh, they're
1: for real. It's not just you know? the surface thing, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and... To be fair, we sort of brought him in uh, with a little trick to talk about his very fun book, uh, but... Of course, you know we wanted to at the end talk about some stars. Yeah, I mean
0: he had been writing a series of books from the perspective of Doctor Watson about Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes, who's his favorite fictional character. Yeah. Of course, he famously wrote uh, the screenplay the seven, for Seven 7% percent, percent Solution, solution based yeah. on his book. And uh, le- last year he published um, the uh, Sherlock Holmes in the case of the uh, Peculiar Protocols about right. the uh, and and it's a wonderful book. And he just finished a new book, a new Sherlock Holmes book that'll be coming out. And uh, the way we feel about Star Trek is the way he feels about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So um, that's great. And speaking of Star Trek II, I thought there was nothing new we could learn about Star Trek. Literally, I mean, there was nothing new. What could you tell the Trek sports that we don't already know about Star Trek II? Right. But in, in talking about the deleted and omitted scenes of some of the Star Trek movies, we did learn a lot about the famous or infamous and, and, and obscure omitted scenes with Khan's baby. In, in, in Star Trek, they there were scenes on SETI Alpha 5 that were in the script in which we would have learned that Khan had a child with Marla MacGyver's and uh, in one of probably the most ill-fated, most ill considered awful decisions, uh, the baby would have been uh, seen on the transporter pad of the Reliant, attracted by the lights of the Genesis torpedo, about to, wandered in there. to detonate yeah. And, and, and to the everlasting credit of everyone involved, that scene was excised. But we did talk about it with the great Eddie Egan, who was the publicist at Paramount on the time for so many movies. But obviously, for our perspective, uh, his stories about Star Trek II, Star Trek III, and Star Trek IV. Of course, Star Trek, the motion picture, utterly prices. We've had Eddie on the show a couple of times now. I'm always thrilled to have him. Uh, he loves movies. He loves Star Trek, the motion picture, the Star Trek movies, the Star Trek cast you know, for him, it wasn't just a job, it was an adventure. Yeah. And, um, and, and here, here we are talking about the, uh, the lost cons baby footage of Star Trek Two. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of, which is the kid on SETI alpha five, you know, uh, the, the, the storyline regarding cons, you know, cons, ba- you know, the, their kids on the, on the planet, obviously yeah. whether they're cons kids, I don't know, but, um, I want to speak to that because there are, you know, there, over the years, there've been a couple of times these photos have found their way into circulation. One, which of course is the face in the window of the cargo carriers to Chekhov and Tyrell see when they first land on SETI Alpha 5. And then there's this weird shot that a lot of people think is just a deep fake oh, of a baby on the transporter pad in um, at the end on the Reliant, which with, is not. With, it's actually
14: With, with, with the, Genesis, with the Genesis machine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, uh, you know, if you would, gentlemen, uh, why, why don't you sort of lay, lay out the table? And I, I want to thank, um, I think it was Fact Trek, who was yes, kind enough was. to send yeah. along um, the, the actual pages and uh, had access to the work print. I want to credit where credit is due. Yeah. Do, yeah. There, where there, they validated
14: this was shot. Well, th- there was dialogue shot, which referred right. to mm-hmm. the child. Uh, look, I, I'm, I, I have a pretty good memory, but as far as I can remember, they never actually shot with a child on the, on, in the cargo carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have been someone's child. Right. Like just put there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember the baby on the transporter pods because um that machine made so much noise when it was turned on mm-hmm. that they, they tried to do something and the baby cried or crawled off or kept looking at the camera, but that thing was incredibly loud. I don't know if yeah. you guys have ever heard the production audio. Mm-mm. No. It was deafening. Wow. Um, so I, I don't remember, I, I do remember like, that we killed all of those photos. By, by the way, this, let me just go off on a little tangent. All these photos you see now of behind-the-scenes stuff, including the memory wall, and I'm telling you where all of those came from. They all came from Major Roddenberry. Sure. Because they had a contract. They got a copy of proof sheets uh, as part of their Lincoln Enterprises mm. deal. And they weren't obligated to uh observe the kills and kills for uh those who may may or may not know are either actual uh actors contractual rights to uh not use a photograph that is not flattering or something the studio kills because a scene has been removed or uh or, or a plot or, or element or received see- or- plot elements right
1: yeah it's uh it, it's eye-opening Because, you know, for years and years, we never heard anything about this.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It was just there there was no information. And then all of a sudden, boom. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Revelatory. And, you know, so occasionally you get somebody, you know, who you've read interviews with, you've interviewed maybe yourself many times, and then they just share all the stuff you've never heard before. And that was the case with producer Ralph Winter, who joined us to talk about his experience doing the Star Trek movies. And of course... You know, he was on the lot um, doing post production on uh, TV shows like Happy Days and Police Squad, and, and and saw the pandemonium of Star Trek: The Motion Picture, only to get involved with post production on Star Trek: throughout The Wrath of Khan, and then eventually produced Star Trek Three, Four, of uh, you know, Five and Six. And he would have produced the Academy Years had that um, premise yeah. to do a prequel um, uh, uh, with how Kirk and Spock McCoy met at the Academy. Actually come to pass um, and uh, Ralph talks about all that with us on the Trek experts and here he is:
15: I, I like what you're saying, Darren, that, that we were reaching really far, and I don't think we saw past our success of Star Trek 4 and we thought we could do no wrong right. and we missed key elements and key pieces in putting that together. So.
0: Well, it has some of the best character moments in any oh, of the films. Oh, I mean, yeah. And we talked to David about this. I mean, oh, yeah. that's where, you know, unfortunately, you know, the special effects people taint it. They can't oh. look the same way that people now, you know, can't watch a Hitchcock movie with bad rear projection. They're like, oh, those cheesy old movies. And and they can't get past it. It was like, but the movie's brilliantly, you know, it's Ernie Lehman and it's this and it's brilliant and the acting and everything. And they're like, no, but it's corny. And it's the same thing. You got to watch Star Trek 5 and say, okay, the effects... You know, aren't successful but what about yeah. that movie is successful well there's quite a bit that is successful about that movie
15: yeah. and you yeah. have to be able to kind of discern that i mean we pulled off some things on that show we you know uh, there are not very many feature films that have shot in yosemite valley yeah we were able to pull that off and they had come off a horrible experience at universal with for some reason they were painting the rocks which was like what are you smoking? What's wrong with you people? Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, the opening uh, climbing sequence was—we uh, we made some, God, we made some mistakes at the very beginning on that. That wall, which is at Tunnel View Park, if you've been to Yosemite, there's a there's a parking lot where you can see, um, you can see the wall that uh, right. that you climb, El Capitan. And so when we lined up our wall, you'd get the same view that you would get if you were actually climbing. And they did a pretty good job on the wall. But when you look at the real wall at El Capitan, there's actually inside of the granite, there's a glistening. There's a a life to it that wasn't coming out on the set. And so Herman Zimmerman tried to do something at the last minute and we were stuck and we had to shoot. And it looked fake. It looked plastic. And that was, you know... Unfortunate. we probably should have left it alone. But that climbing sequence and uh, the stunt guy that fell 390 feet, which is the largest fall ever at right. that point. And sort of the production things that we did on that show were remarkable. Um, but, you know, the effects just didn't live up. That didn't help us. That yeah. helped. Once you've got something to complain about, then you can point to other things and say, "Well, that doesn't work either," and this and that. So, I I wore that and almost I almost ended my career because I'm the one that fought for making a change from ILM and trying something new, and on a big franchise movie, woof. Learn my lesson.
0: Tell us a little bit about. Um the Academy years, and and obviously what, what why that never came to fruition. I guess you could argue that it did in Star yeah. Trek 2009, but... Uh...
15: It did. Uh, JJ used that opening scene that we had developed with uh, David. Um, I pitched the idea to Harv at his daughter's bat mitzvah. And I said, you know, why don't we go back to the beginning? Why don't we have young Spock at, a, at the academy, young Spock, young Kirk, we demonstrated it with Star Trek 3. We can do it again, and and I pitched Frank Mancuso on the back lot. I know exactly on the lot where I did it, and pitched him, and I said, "Don't make Star Trek five. Make Star Trek five, six, and seven. Make a trilogy with the younger cast. And here's how it would look, and here's how it would go." And he listened, and he appreciated it, but he said. I got a 25 year anniversary. I got to sell that. I've got this cast. I can't avoid that. I think I can make more in the box office with a 25 year anniversary than I can with starting over. And, you know, there was precedent. I wasn't coming up with some brand new idea back to the future. Other things had done that. We had done it successfully on, on Star Trek three, but, um, that was a marketing decision by the studio that they wanted to do the 25 year. And they felt like that could close it off nicely for a bunch of reasons. And that was Frank's decision. Uh, Harv drew a line in the sand about that movie. um, Expected me to stand on this, on his side. And I didn't. And it caused a rift between us that, wasn't complete but it was it was tense afterwards uh and we kissed and made up later but you know i think that he fully expected me to walk away uh with him and i at that point in my career i felt i couldn't do that yeah. he could i couldn't
1: i wish we had like four more hours to talk with Ralph winter maybe someday we will Oh, I, I think he was anxious to talk more. We were anxious to
0: talk more. Uh, I, was, I, remember, I, I I I remember, and said this on the podcast. I said, I was absolutely exhausted. I had no interest in sitting down and recording an episode of the podcast that day. And from the second he started talking, you know, I just lapped it up. I was so excited about what he had to say. And speaking of, of people, I was excited. I know you were, especially when she started talking about the um, vagaries of Vulcan sex was Robin <laughs> Curtis, who played Savic in Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four, And she was one of the most delightful, fun, candid, honest uh, guests um, uh, we've ever had on the show.
16: So I I met Stuart Jensen and Elsa Bergeron at exactly 11.45 on June 27th, 1983. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and I remember, I remember very offhandedly saying to them, you know, because they wouldn't tell you what the part was. It was all very secretive. Mm. And I said, uh, "Guys, I uh, I'm not even exactly sure where this comes from, but but I'm hoping that that whatever the character is, it's an alien." I'm I I was correct. I I sometimes doubted myself that it was the very next day. But the very next day, I met Leonard Nimoy at 10:15 in the morning. I get goose pimples. And I remember he taped me, he put me on videotape. It was just one-on-one, which is highly unusual. Very often you're in a room full of people. You don't know quite who to, who to you know, uh, fuss over or, or to make a connection with because nobody's identified when you go into audition, right? Mm-hmm. And, but this was just him and me. And, and he, he, he was so kind. You know, at that point, my, my, my uh, resume was a little tragic. And um, and he was asking me about the little dinner theater credits in upstate New York, you know? So, what was it going like to be? Aldonza and Don Quixote, you know, and whatever, and, and Nancy and Oliver. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I played all the witches and wenches of the musical theater. Um, and anyway, he said, do you mind if I put you on videotape? And would you, do you mind going out and reading, you know, some of the sides? And I'll have you come back in and do that on tape with me. And I said, not at all. And and when I left his office, he I, I, I he shook my hand. And he said he said robin i have no doubt you could play this part now it's up to the powers that be and i and i i also i walked out of there thinking what just happened what just happened because it just doesn't it just doesn't go that gently you know it's usually much tougher much more stressful the 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 you know the 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 pressure mounts and and there's much more time involved and, and so on. But this was this was so sweet. Did he talk
0: to you much about his philosophy of Vulcans in the sense that rather than them being uh, without emotions, which a lot of actors tend to play it very bland because they don't act, that it actually is, they have um, uh, emotions that they're repressing, which is very uh-huh. different than not yeah. having emotions, um, you know, which was always his, Philosophy, which is you know why he has become such an iconic character. I mean, how much did he articulate his philosophy of what a Vulcan is to you in 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 your performance?
16: His method of direction was either to disarm me a little bit um, um, at the the end of the film um, when um, when when Spock steps back to, to to the to the line and and is looking each of us in the face. Uh, he had come up to me just moments before we, we shot that sequence and, and he said he, and he stepped into my space a little more than he normally would so much so that his lips were right at my ear. You know, we're standing right there with each other. And, uh, and he said, what would you, how would you feel if you were to run into someone say on a New York city street that you had loved and you had been intimate with, and you yeah. hadn't seen me for a few years. And I'm like, wow, you know big question wanna 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 articulate an answer for you but I'm but I'm a little flush and a little embarrassed but 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 also I but I but I definitely want to come up with something for you and I looked him in the eye and then I looked away because I because I was trying to find my words and he goes that's it he goes that's it that's what I want in that moment I'm like okay
1: this gives me, this an, gives idea. me an idea frankly okay go um, because of your uh your famous <laughs> scene in three you know yes with yes. The, with the burgeoning Spock. Uh, I submit that that you and I should write a book called The Joy of Vulcan Sex. And it's just drawings of hands and various oh. hand positions.
2: Oh, my
16: God. I love it, Darren. Let's
1: try it. Let's try it. This is the million-dollar idea.
16: Oh, poor, poor Stephen Manley and I came to work that day, and we're like, what, what is Leonard Nimoy going to make us do? Right. You know, we didn't know which body part would be connecting with, uh, you know, which by, just didn't have an idea what Vulcan foreplay would be like. Right. And then, and then he comes up with this, and we're like, okay. And we went off, you know, we went off to the edge to just make sure we we imbued it with the with all the sort of you know of of with all of the tenderness the, of a
1: drive-in movie.
16: There you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that, that, yeah, that was an interesting moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. I, I've put my foot in it big time now. No, you're okay. not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to come right on and say it. I, I am in love with Robin Curtis, and I think she's great. So there, fine. Big deal. Well, you could be husband number, number five.
0: So uh, <laughs> now she, she's great. And I just love her honesty. When she tells that story about how Richard Arnold called to tell her, um, oh. I got good news and bad news. She says, tell me the good news. Savik's going to be in Star Trek 6. She's like, that's great. What's the bad news? They want to cast another actress. It's like, oh, my God, that poor woman. Uh, oh. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> when we have Star Trek uh, 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 luminaries on, we don't always talk about Star Trek because we are film fans, first and foremost. So one of my favorites, when we had the great uh, Tom Perry, Perry, who was an executive at... Um, Paramount, a uh, developed star, Trek, the motion picture and was the executive in charge of production until he swapped with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Um, yeah. Tells us just an absolutely wonderful story about a movie we all loved, 1980s Airplane, and how it could have easily
17: gone down in flames. We had talked about the strategy of you know of getting Barry Mantle in the movies, and I thought when I said to him, I said, well, you know, the very first movie that Barry does is going to have to be you know really. Um, experienced director, somebody like, you know, like, um, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Ross, uh, who had directed. uh, Herb Ross. Uh, Herb Ross. Yes. Somebody like Herb Ross. Right. And he said, oh, absolutely. Yes. He's got to be protected. Blah, blah, blah. So I, uh, called up this young man. I can't remember his name, but anyway, he said, Hey John, how are you? Um, I was just came out of a production meeting and, um, uh, Michael Eisner is telling me that um, Barry Manilow might do uh, airplane. Can you tell me, you know, what, ha- what, you know, wh- where this comes from? He said, "Oh yeah," he said Sue Mengers sent over um, a t- pile of scripts, you know, from the various studios that um, that are, you know, that are in production. And he said, and you know, and i I was reading them all, and the one that really stood out was, was airplane. And I thought, oh, fuck, just my luck. The only guy in town who thinks this movie is right. viable because everybody else thought this
8: is a piece of shit.
17: Who's going to make this movie? Right. So he reads it and he goes back and he says to Sue Mengers, he said, wow, this would be great for Barry. Right. Wow. And I said, um, I said, geez, John, I said, um, um, I said, do you realize that the uh, three guys who wrote it are also going to co- co-direct it? I said, "This is only the second movie they've ever made," and um, and I said, "We have a really, really low budget. It's going to be like a million dollars." Um, and there was this long silence, and he said, "Really?" He said, "They? This is only their second movie?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "You know, it could be a gigantic hit." Because, you you know, I think it's going to be amazing because it's so funny, but it also could be a gigantic flop. (laughs) This is really a risky project. And so he said, oh, well, let me think about this. And he hangs up. And about 20 minutes later, my door is closed, and it's right next to Michael Eisner's office. And the door slams open. And Michael... Michael <laughs> strides across um, uh, the de- to my desk. And I'm like startled, and he puts his hand on the desk and he swoops everything across the desk. And he said, he said, Barry Nanlone is not going to be in the movie, and it's your fault. <laughs> and I said, Michael, you're kidding me. Barry's not going to be in the movie. What happened? He said, you know what happened. You, I know you did this. I know you did this. Oh, my goodness. And, and I said, Michael, Michael, I don't know anything about it. And he said, he said, don't ever talk to me about that picture again,
0: ever. <laughs> oh my God. Well, that was interesting. Could you imagine Barry Manilow as <laughs> uh, Copacabana?
1: Oh. oh, my God. I, 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 the mind I, is boggled by that whole thing and how that would have, would it have worked? I don't know. It's fascinating to think about. In well, thank some, God Paramount In some reality, it
0: exists. it exists. But thank God Paramount wasn't ready to take the chance again.
1: Oh, I see there.
0: That's oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like Mandy. two ships that pass in the night.
0: Indeed, indeed. But uh, Tom was a great guest. He also talks about um, how he made a lot of money on Star Wars, even though he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, and I love that story. How after after uh, a re- you know, seeing Star Wars or reading uh, reading the script of Star Wars, he 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 put a ton of money into 20th Century Fox Fox stock before it opened, mm-hmm. being one of the few people that thought that the movie would do something. And he said he he paid off all his college debts. <laughs>
1: So well, uh, um, Tom, Tom is great. When we, when we first were talking to uh, Robert Wise about the director's edition back in the uh, late nineties, uh, he said, contact Tom Perry, because hmm. he, he was there from the beginning. He, he helped bring me into the project and uh, uh, he, he just couldn't stop saying glowing things about him. So, uh, and this was proven in his small visit with us,
0: you know, but it's not always, you know, on the show about covering the big stars or the people who made the movies or the TV shows. Sometimes it's about the fans themselves. And I I have to say, he's not a household name, but
12: there may have been
0: no greater moment than when we had the Organian himself, (laughs) the the trivia master, Rafe Needleman, come on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know, there was a book in the mid seventies that was published called the official Star Trek trivia book. By Rafe Needleman, and it became a running gag on the show. And Rafe, uh, who he was actually was listening to the show, heard us talking about him. Yeah, and then got in touch with us and flew himself down from San Francisco to be on the show, uh, and and tell us the origins of uh, the or the, tri- tri- the book and and take some good natured joshing <laughs> about calling himself <laughs> an Orgadian. Well, you know, it was funny because we were very uh, genuflecting, you know, and then when we didn't hear anything back, it got a little more. Well, you know, so, that's what happened.
1: <laughs> I, I got to tell you that my introduction was not you guys reaching out to me. I was commuting to work and I'm listening to this podcast in the car. It's the first time I would heard this podcast and I'm only listening to it because it had shown up in some list as science fiction podcasts actually worth listening to. Right. 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 And I have a really long commute. So I'm in the middle. I'm on 280, driving it. It's stuck in traffic, and there's and listening to the podcast. And I said, "But can you answer this question from?" And they and I'm like,
9: "No, they're not going." No, that was too long ago. Goodness. Rafe Needleman. And I'm like,
2: <laughs> "That's me!" Oh my God, oh that's my me! Goodness.
1: I believe there's a word for that. It's called kismet. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so your... that's when I sent the note
11: to you. It's like, uh, "I am Rafe Needleman." We need to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's right. hilarious. That's right. I mean, I'm sitting here. I, I, I can't think of you as somebody other than you stepped in front of my great interest in my life, and you just stood up and said, I know more about Star Trek than you <laughs> by <laughs> writing this book. I was like, who is this person? I was 12, admittedly. Yeah. And I'm like, who? Who? You dare? Mm. <laughs> and then, of course, I was not an Organian after going through your book. I, I There were questions I didn't answer correctly, and I felt resentful of you and it's been resent for the better part of 38 years we can settle this like men if you want to. <laughs> oh no I, I, I bow to you the organian
1: that was loads of fun i i i wish that i wish that we could have like a big you know game show where uh rafe is the trivia master that lords over everyone and uh tests their trek knowledge i think that would be hilarious i
0: agree <laughs> I um, I have to say, you know, and what, I think one of the other moments that really resonated for me in terms of fans that we found on the show, um, the wonderful Dan Matson, who was good friends with Gene Roddenberry and George Lucas, who started the original Star Trek Star Lucasfilm Fan Club and the original Star Trek Fan Club, um, he's he's a little person, and um, he talks about how seeing Michael Dunn on Plato's Stepchildren when he was at his lowest ebb. Uh, inspired not only a lifelong love of Star Trek but taught him to sort of love himself and then okay. sharing that story with Bill Shatner. It's a remarkable moment and um, we want to share that with you now.
18: You know I really had never bothered to watch Star Trek. I, I just I hadn't had any interest in it um, but for some reason you know I grabbed my my um, my my choc- my chocodile and my glass of milk and <laughs> Down and uh, I sat next to my brother, and I happened to watch the episode that was on that day. And it just so happened to be that on that specific day, the episode Plato's Stepchildren was playing. Wow! And suddenly, you know, I get to see. I'm watching this episode, and all of a sudden, here comes this little guy um, that that looks like me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? You know. And I mean, I just come from being made fun of for being a little guy. Um and so uh I sit down and I watch that episode and I'm telling you guys it was like a light bulb going off it was like the 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 hair standing up on the back of my uh my my neck and uh I was watching that and there was the one moment in that episode when he sits next to Captain Kirk and he says what's it like where you come from and Captain Kirk looks at him and he says Alexander where I come from size shape or color makes no difference and I mean, it was like a, an explosion going off in me. I was like, "Oh my God, how would it be to be in a world like that, where nobody judged me for how I looked and my size, but they judged me for what I what I had inside?" Um, and then, of course, at the end of the episode, he gets to beam up to the Enterprise with them, and that was it, man. I was, I was, I became a hardcore fan. I was just, I, I watched every episode that ran every day after that, and I. Went to my first convention where everybody accepted me. They didn't care whether I was little or not. You know, they were dressed up as Klingons and Romulans, and you know, everybody was equal. and uh, And uh, and that's where it all began. One of the biggest joys
0: in that movie was giving you, having you, and having you accept, which was very generous, to play Michael Dunn. You know, in Plato's Stepchildren you know, and it's a quick throwaway, but people who are fans of that episode of Star they get it. I mean, you, as, as, as uh, you know, uh, you know, playing Alexander in Star Trek is uh, so great. I, I mean, that, I just love
18: that. that like coming full circle for me, Mark, when you, uh, you know, you gave me the opportunity to come out and, and, and play Alexander in that whole scene. And that, that night filming that with Shatner and, um, It was kind of like, you know, my whole story came full circle, you know, and now here I am being in this amazing film that you guys made, which I still watch, you know, all the time. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of that. That movie was about celebrating
0: you know, the impact that Star Trek had on our lives. You know, it was, it was kind of a refutation of the Saturday Night Live Get a Life skit. You know, it was kind of like Star Trek meant much and it, it set us on our path and we fell in love and it made a difference. So like the idea, knowing your story and how Plato's Stepchildren had impacted you, it was like really wanted to pay
18: homage to that. It's people whose lives were literally changed by Star Trek. And I'll mention this as a Bill Shatner story. The one time that really meant a lot to me was it was maybe the second or third time I interviewed him. No, it was the second time. And I flew out to LA and met him at his office. And um, we sat down on a couch and I'm sitting here and he's sitting literally next to me just kind of looking down at me, almost the exact same position as Alexander and Kirk were in in that episode. And I told him that story and I could see him getting kind of goosebumps on his arms. And I still remember this, you know, he's like, oh, my God, Dan, that's an amazing story. And he almost felt I could see him, you know, I will swear, I almost thought his eyes welled up a little bit when I told him what that had meant to me and how what that episode, how important that was in my life. And um, that moved and motivated him so much that when he came around to write his book, Get a Life, he decided to do a chapter on me and. He called me up and wanted me to retell that story again of how that had changed my life. Mm-hmm. And so that's now documented in that book, Get a Life, that he wrote.
0: Um, and what's great and, is that he remembered it and just stuck with him all those years. Because I will say, you know, I love Bill, but, you know, him kind of remembering stuff is not one of his, you know, it's in one ear, out the other. And and uh, so it's really remarkable that, you know, that had that potency, that after yeah. all those years he remembered you know, that story that clearly really touched him.
1: What a, what a moving story. And what a what a, uh, you know, he's, he's been a lovely person since ever since I've known him and he, uh, what a, what a great, what a great story of his success and where it all came from.
18: Absolutely.
0: I mean, Dan's a great guy and uh, you know, what is that line in mega force? The, you know, the good guy. The I'm good glad
1: guy. I don't the, know. The good guys
0: always win, even in the 80s. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably best. But Persis Cabato is in Megaforce. So. Well, this so is there. true. Yeah, yeah. So listen, um, so if you're a fan of this podcast and Glorious Trexperts, you really owe it to yourself to check out the Trekspert's Briefing Room feed. You can watch it. It's intended to be watched with the episodes, but you don't need to. I actually listen to them in the car and find them quite entertaining. It has so. been
1: selected for us. <laughs> we and we're providing it to you, <laughs>
0: um, and uh, yeah, so so that's pretty great. And the 4:30 movie is back, Darren, isn't it? That's right, it is. So uh, if you enjoy hearing fantasy theme weeks um, from uh, Darren, myself, Steve Melching, and Ashley Miller, you want to check out the 4:30 movie. Of course, every other week, you want to check out the best movies ever made with Steve Scalata and uh, Josh Miller. It's a terrific podcast. I really enjoy it in the Cartoon Barroom. Uh, which is an animation and cartoon podcast from the brilliant minds of Ashley Miller and Steve Melching. Stephen Melching, I, yeah. I once called him Steve Melching instead of Stephen Melching. He got upset with me. So he looks askance I, when you call him Steve. I, I will call him Stephen. I shall call you <laughs> Stephen. And uh, what anyway. else do we? That's really about <laughs> it, isn't it? So, I, I, you know, I gotta tell you, and we'll do this another time. I have a few things to say about some of the recent. Um, posts on apple podcasts Mm. some of the reviews on apple pie i have some very strong opinions to share but i'm going to save that for an upcoming episode so i just want to say if you enjoyed this podcast please rate us five stars leave your comments on apple podcasts they may be read on a future show
1: and if you Uh, haven't enjoyed it and left a a not so positive review your day is coming your day is coming the the (laughs) (laughs) retribution (laughs) is ahead well put
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and also I want to um, say you can follow us on social media at Inglorious Trek on um, Twitter, Trek sports on Instagram, Facebook. And uh, yeah, those are the
1: social media sites that we're on. And the MySpace <laughs> page is going great guns.
0: I, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a Friendster page any day now. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, um, I want to thank uh, Bill Ritter, our fantastic sound engineer, Mark Rivera, Associate down in here who's been kicking in and helping out and doing an amazing job. And of course our producer, Natalie Miscalli and our associate producers, Zach Raggett and Peter Holmstrom. And uh,
1: you our audience who keeps coming back for more abuse from the Trexperts. And don't um, forget our CompuServe address. 60342,4087. <laughs> I'll get on. No, my I B20 don't, I don't know if that's our address. I don't think it is. We don't have one
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking to you out of time. And it's been great. People have been suggesting ideas for upcoming shows. We'll certainly consider them. We shall consider
1: it. Um, We'll consider them when this becomes a democracy. No way. No, no, we we actually need ideas. (laughs) Well, clearly it's not. We like hearing
2: suggestions.
0: (laughs) We like hearing suggestions. And if we deem them worthy, (laughs) we will. Yes. Somebody said, somebody said on, no, I can't can't go there. I was going to say. Don't go there No. Okay. I'm not going to go. Save that for a future show. And until next week, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course.